In the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we ask that your Holy Spirit be with us, guide us, inspire us, help us to open our minds and our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through Holy Scripture. So we ask your blessing on our efforts this day, and always, as we study, help us to not only understand what we're reading or hearing, but help us carry it through from our mind to our heart to our actions. So we thank you for this time, and we thank you and praise you in all things, in Jesus' name. Today we are going to sort of cover the ending of the letter of James. And I would like to do it in the context of the sense of church, which we talked about last week. This is one of James' pet themes, you might say. And it is really, I think, a very good way to look at what our lifestyle should be. And that is really a lifestyle of representing God, representing our church to the world as we have to live in it and through it. So today, this idea of sense of church, when I say sense of church, I don't necessarily mean church building. I mean the concept of church as community. Christ, or God, I should say, really, uh, made us to know and love and to serve him through community. And that is one of the unfortunate things that the Jewish people have never been able to quite understand, or at least in the time of Christ and for hundreds of years before that. The Jewish people were, and and the Jewish faith, was established to be a light to the nations. In uh, Isaiah chapter 49, it talks about how God made the Jewish people to be a special community built out of love of God and love of neighbor. And then display that or reflect that to all the nations around them. And yet, they didn't. They felt that they were the chosen people. They had a special God who made heaven and earth and all things and made them special. And therefore, they wanted to keep that special uh, feeling. And so they made themselves an exclusive community and not wanting to go out to the rest of uh, the world and reflect what God had given them and had taught them through the prophets and so many others. All right. And we as Catholics should be reflecting our faith and our beliefs in the same way. If we withhold those and just maintain them within ourselves or within our family or within our just our homes, 
then we are no better than the Jewish people of long ago. Now, the Jewish people have come a long, long way from that in modern times. But I'm, I'm talking about the time period around Christ and before. But we don't want to then do the same thing because, as it says in Psalm 81, God left them to their own designs and their own wishes, uh, but he left them behind um, and did not maintain that close personal relationship that he had with them prior to. So we got to be very careful in how we express our faith. And I think you have all probably heard people say, well, uh, my faith is, is something that is personal to me, and I don't feel like I want to uh, display it. Well, that's true. You don't have to go around with a big billboard on your uh, shoulders or, uh, you know, a, a sweatshirt that says, I am Catholic, and so forth and so on. Uh, that doesn't really do any good. In fact, that can do more harm than good in most cases. But it is the way you reflect your uh, your speech, your actions, what you do. And when you have uh, the opportunity, or when the opportunity arises to defend your faith, you really have an obligation to do so. Uh, i give you a little... Uh, Example, you might say. I was with a group of family uh, members uh, Saturday night, and my younger, well, one of my younger granddaughters, who granddaughters at my age is not that young anymore, 25, uh, we started to talk about her in the context of what we were talking about. The subject of nationalities came up. And she said something like, may I remind you that you are not supposed to be talking uh, against any other uh, nationality. And I thought, ooh, you know. In a sense, she's right. I think she went a little overboard. Uh, but in a way, she was correct. Uh, we were not being derogatory in, in any way. But nevertheless, she was uncomfortable with the fact that we were talking about uh, some other uh, lifestyle, you might say. But I gave her credit, and I told her so, I gave her credit for at least speaking up. She could have done it a little bit more discreetly, uh, but nevertheless, uh, she at least spoke up when she thought it was appropriate, and we were inappropriate. <laughs> Uh, I still chuckle over it because, like I said, I think it was a little overboard, but um, that's okay. At least she did something that she felt was necessary to do. And that's the way it should be. And it can be done in a lighthearted way, uh, but still get the point across. And that's what she did. Uh, so I sort of am proud of her for that. Okay. But what I wanted to do really today is to cover the end of James. Now, as I'm sure you've all come to realize, James is just a, 
a number of exhortations or little teachings on various subjects, but they all center around the idea of representing what our goal should be as church. And um, many people don't like to be told about the things that they may not be uh, up to par on. And so uh, I want to go through some of these things here because it's important, at least I feel, it's important really to kind of refresh our memory and uh, review some of the thoughts that James is presenting here. And he starts out really where we can go back actually to uh, the end of chapter 2 where he talks about faith and works. That's one of his big uh, overall objectives is here is to really get us to bring the teachings, you might say, of St. Paul and the teachings of Martin Luther together. Uh, they were both correct in one sense, but wrong in another. Um, St. Paul, in one way, goes uh, along with Martin Luther, but Martin Luther does not go along with uh, the letter of James. And really, I think both of them are wrong and to some degree, and both of them are right to some degree. For example, Paul tells us that it is faith that makes us whole and leads us to salvation. Not guarantees it, but leads us to salvation. Uh, Martin Luther picks that up and says, Faith is all that we need. But James, I think, comes to the rescue, you might say, and brings those two together because he says that faith without showing it through works, and he uses that as sort of an overall um, category of uh, actions, But faith without expressing it through our works is empty. I'm not going to say is dead as James does. I think that's a harsh word and it turns people off. But faith that is not expressed through works is empty. Now, chapters 3 through the end of James gives us some examples of what he's talking about in the idea of works. Because that is not a word that is kind of clear to us. So let us go through some of these uh, points that he is making here and discuss them. He starts out in chapter 3 with the power of the tongue. We can offend more people, I think, as my granddaughter thought, uh, by improper thought, uh, speech and offensive or vulgar language, but not only vulgar language, uh, swearing and, you know, using all kinds of, of cuss words, etc., but sometimes 
the way we voice our opinions about other nationalities, other people, uh, and simple things. We have a way of, and I think I mentioned this the other day, of looking at people who are neat and well-dressed um, as being uh, very acceptable, uh, very pleasing, etc. But people who are poorly dressed, a little odd-looking or whatever, is, uh, you know, sort of put down in our mind, if not in our speech. And that is wrong. I had an interesting uh, experience uh, Sunday morning coming out of church. Uh, my son was with me. And this man turned to me and he said, would you please take me uh, down to... Um, forgot what he called it, but um, some little uh, area down in Watton and the freeway, 80. And I thought, you know, that's, well, I don't mind doing that, but how did you get here in the first place, you know? <laughs> and there was a few odd situations. Anyways, so I thought, well, it's raining, and the poor guy looked like he could use a ride, so yes. Um, but it was much further than I expected. Um, but nevertheless, I thought, oh, well, uh, I just came out of church. How can I refuse him? <laughs> so the man got in front, and my son sat on the back, and... I said, well, now you'll have to guide me as to where you want me to take you. Well, it, down, it happened to be down uh, at uh, on Watt Avenue, just north of the freeway. Well, we could have gone down uh, <laughs> Riego Road or, you know, Baseline or whatever uh, to get there just as quickly. But anyways, it didn't make any difference. But the thing is, he wanted to go to a... Um, all-you-can-eat restaurant. <laughs> now, this is around 10, 10.30, where, you know, 11 o'clock, or not quite 11. And so, in the process of describing, and he had to tell me every turn as if I had never been there before, you know. But it was an interesting little situation. Uh, he had quite an aroma around him also, but that was okay, we, you know, we put up with that. But he wanted to go there to have breakfast because it was all you could eat. But he said, if I stay past 11.30, then I can also have lunch. <laughs> so I thought, well, no wonder you're a pretty big man. You know? <laughs> but it was... Um, so he got out, and he was very thankful, but before he left, he says, uh, can you help me with some financial assistance? <laughs> he didn't ask me for a donation or, you know, a buck or two. It was financial assistance. But, well, okay. <laughs> uh, but those are kind of, those. you know, it could have been an angel, it could have been God himself 
just kind of testing me since I just came out of church, you know. Um, it was a rather aromatic uh, testing, but nevertheless, uh, it worked out. Uh, and he departed. He was very thankful and very grateful and very, you know, kind of nice guy, but a little mm, strange. Uh, but that is a way, one little way, uh, and I'm not patting myself on the back. I, I'm just sharing an interesting experience with you. Uh, but that's one way of expressing our Catholic beliefs and lifestyle, all right? Now, this is somebody I could have said, well, look, that's far, too far away from me. I'm not, uh, I don't live in that direction or anything. But coming out of church, he needed help. I had the time and the wherewithal. Why not? So those are the little things that we have to look at. But let's get back to the idea of the power or the, the, of the tongue. You know, uh, as it says here on the handout I gave you, that one of the things that distinguishes us from all other creation is the fact that we have the power of speech and reason which all other creation, other than human beings, do not have. Now, you might say, well, animals have uh, a power of, of communication. No, animals have instinct, which is different from human beings. We have the power of intellect, and we have to use it in a proper way. We have to think about it as a gift from God a special gift from God that only human beings have. Now, the power of intellect is often referred to as uh, free will. And that is true. We have free will, but it is kind of the other side of the coin, you might say, from God's being all love, all give, forgiving, etc., etc., when he gives us the power of free will, that means that we have the opportunity to make choices, good choices and bad choices. And I, well, don't, I'm sure all of you know some people who are just constantly making bad choices. Uh, and that's unfortunate, but what is missing there is really uh, a faith, a connection with God, asking for God's help to constantly give us the ability to make good choices. But the consequence of making poor choices, you know, is sin. And that is something that we really have to be concerned with. So... The power of the tongue is one of the, the greatest uh, displays, you might say, of God's special love for mankind in giving us the power of intellect, which then, of course, relates to speech and decision-making. But the consequences of saying the wrong thing or making the wrong decision can lead us really uh, down that slippery slope, you might say. We have <coughs> the other 
kinds of things, uh, true wisdom and false wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is using that power of the intellect to make the right decisions on a constant basis. Uh, but if we do not use it, then regardless of how well-educated we might be, or how well off we are financially, or whatever, that does not make us wise. Wisdom only comes when we are in connection with our God and using it according to his will, not ours, but his. And then we conform our will to him. That's when wisdom comes into play. And wisdom really should govern everything that we say and do. And yet it doesn't. Uh, partly because of other weaknesses. Anger, emotions, uh, you name it. By the way, emotions... are often um, mistaken for decisions and vice versa. Decisions are often mistaken with emotions. Emotions are something that we have very little control over uh, on an, an instantaneous basis. But if we realize that our emotions are getting out of hand and are not uh, in line with what God wants of us, then we have an obligation to do something about it. And most people, um, most people really won't do that. And yet, it's important that we do. So we, this idea of true wisdom and false wisdom, let's go into some of the wording here I don't like to re-read all of this because the wording here is not, um, you might say, as in tune with uh, our thinking today. The idea, the concept, the point that he's trying to make, yes, is just as important today as it was uh, 2,000 years ago. But the wording is a little on the stiff side. Uh, not many of you, I'm starting with chapter 3 here, not many of you uh, should become teachers, and that's for sure. <laughs> for you realize that we will be judged more strictly. Uh, you know, uh, and for one who has been teaching for many years, and for any of you who have been teachers or are teachers currently, you'll realize, I think, over a period of time, uh, how important that what you are saying is to the people who are hearing it. Uh, somebody gave me a little plaque, you might say, um, hard to describe, but a little plaque that says, uh, to teach is to touch a soul forever. 
And I, I've always listened to that, and I think of that quite often because um, if you teach and it hits a person you know, strongly, it can affect them in a way that may or may not have been intended. But it is uh, a very powerful uh, quality of teaching. Is to teach is to touch a soul forever. When I heard that, I thought he was saying uh, we, you know, we cannot all be teachers in the sense that Christ and the disciples were teachers, that is, leaders of the church. Now, you're putting a different flavor to it. Um, no, I think we all have to be teachers in a sense. But what he's talking about, I think, is more professional teachers. Um, you know, or people who do this. Because in the time of James or Christ or the first century, uh, teaching was a far uh, more powerful uh, occupation than we think about it today. Um, Today, as well, as you know, and so many others, uh, teachers are not paid really anything near what they should be. Um, but, uh, no, I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's a moot point in a way. It could look, be looked upon in either way. The thing that we're really looking at is the example that we give, whether we're doing it as part of a teaching program or we're just doing it as everyday uh, living, uh, nevertheless, we can still affect other people by what we say and do. <coughs> um, sorry about that, but I lost my, my um, trend of thought again says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you realize that we will be judged more strictly, and that's true, for we all fall short in many respects. If anyone does not fall short in speech, he is a perfect man, but there are a few of those, able to bridle his whole body also. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide their whole bodies. It is the same with ships. And, you know, he goes on and gives these rather odd uh, examples. Uh, a very large ship is guided by a small rudder. Well, that's true. The point that we're making here is we have to be very careful for on our speech because a few words can damage or make a lot of damage. Okay. And then it goes on and on for, uh, with the same idea. Let's go over to true wisdom. Who among you is wise and understand? Let him show his works by a good life in the humility that comes from wisdom. 
The idea of humility is vitally important to all of this teaching. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Wisdom of this kind does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual. That is wisdom of the world he's talking about, okay? Demonic in some cases. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there is disorder in every foul practice. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, then peaceable, gentle, compliant, full of mercy and good fruits, without inconstancy or insincerity. And the fruit of righteousness is shown in peace for those who cultivate peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, as it says in the Beatitudes. So we got to be very careful about our speech. And again, this all comes into the idea of Catholic lifestyle. But I think it would be wise for all of you to do as our best, uh, I think, way in the first part of this session, uh, eight or nine weeks ago, about writing out for your own eyes, your own personal benefit, why are you a Catholic? And what do you feel makes you a Catholic? Uh, I dare say it would be very interesting for you if you're honest with yourself and you write it out and really understand why are you a Catholic. Uh, this is a... Um, I don't know how to say it. This is a new movement, you might say, in the Catholic Church of trying to get people to understand why they are Catholics. I just received uh, the other day um, a very large, a very well-written, very expensive uh, pamphlet on that very subject, what it is to be Catholic, written by Cardinal uh, Bishop World, W-U-R-W-U-R-E-L, World. He's the Archbishop uh, of um, Washington, D.C. now. Has written some wonderful books. Uh, I highly recommend uh, any and all of them. Okay. But he's got this started in the East Coast of trying to get people to not only see, but acknowledge and to write out and understand why are they Catholic. Uh, and again, not to be an elitist group or an exclusive group like the Jewish people of the time of Christ, but to better understand what a Catholic lifestyle is all about. I'll bring it in next week to show you. I was going to bring it in today and Unfortunately, I didn't. 
uh, but it's, I think, rather interesting. Let us go on. Chapter 4. Where do the wars and where do the conflicts among you come from? Is it not from your passions that make war within your members? You covet but do not possess. You kill and envy but you cannot obtain. You fight and wage wars. Now he's not talking about you particularly. But, um, you do not possess because you do not ask. You ask but you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Do not know, do you not know that to be a lover of the world means enmity with God? And there, you know, that's the point that I think I've been trying to make all along. People today, not only young people, but people today in general, are so caught up in their iPads and their smartphones that they seem to be constantly looking at these uh, electronic devices and not really kind of thinking for themselves. The whole idea of always looking to a device to feed you information and then you accept it on face value is wrong. God gave us this intellect that I mentioned earlier to use for our benefit to discover him and to think about him and what he wants of you and how he wants you to live. So we've got to kind of set a time. You know, the devices in themselves can be very helpful. I'm not saying that they're wrong in themselves, but when they control our lives and take over almost 100% of our time period, that is wrong. That is wrong. Do you not know that to be a lover of the world means enmity with God? And therefore, whoever wants to be a lover of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that the scripture speaks without meaning when it says, the spirit that he has made to dwell in us tends towards jealousy. In other words, the whole idea of the Holy Spirit. And in elsewhere, scripture says that the Holy Spirit is a jealous spirit, meaning that he wants to have a very close relationship with us and he doesn't want something to be uh, put over him. All right? something to be more important than God. And it's so easy and common to hear today, well, I don't have time for God. I've got this to do and that to do. And, you know, and uh, my granddaughter, and I've mentioned this before, she, she and her husband both work. They both have very expensive uh, careers. Uh, my my daughter, uh, granddaughter's husband has his own business, and uh, my granddaughter has a very uh, high-level job. She has two children. She's also involved in the Chamber of Commerce. So I said, well, um, 
when do you pray? Oh, Grandpa, I don't have time for prayer. I got all of this, and you know, I got all of that, and I got the kids in soccer and sweating and you know every sport I think imaginable. And they're only nine and twelve years old. You know. um, but I said, when do you have time to pray? Well, you know, I. It's interesting though. The other night. My son-in-law, her father, called me and said, you'll be happy to know that she has just entered the RCIA program to become a Catholic. I thought, hey, praise the Lord. I've been, I've been praying for that for a long time. She's been raising her children as, as Catholic. But she her, herself and her husband uh, have not really, and several times I've asked her, Kim, when are you going to make the, the big decision? Well, Grandpa, I got all this thing, and yeah, yeah. But finally, it's come around. But see, that's when maturity and smarts and wisdom really sit in. It's when you really begin to realize that your life is empty without God. says this again. The spirit that he has made uh, to, made to dwell in us tends towards jealousy. Uh, normally jealousy is something that is wrong and uh, could be actually sinful in itself if it gets to extremes. But what it's saying is here is that the Holy Spirit wants to be first in your life. Remember the Holy Spirit is God. And part of the Trinity. But he bestows a greater grace therefore. And he says God resists the proud. But gives grace to the humble. There again. Humble or humility. One of the prime ingredients of wisdom. So submit yourself to God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. I think you've all heard that before. You know, it's interesting how James has given us uh, many phrases that we're all very familiar with. And yet we don't realize where they came from. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you... Of two minds. Begin to lament, to mourn, to weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into dejection. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Oh, how important that really is. Humility again. This is something that you should all pray for. And that, what is humility? Okay? It's not putting yourself down. It's not degrading yourself in any way. That's a mistake if people think that. Humility really is recognizing God and your relationship with God and the fact that He is your Creator, your Redeemer, and a divine lover and will give to you all good things. 
provided that they're in line with what he feels is the best for you. So, it's, it's really important. Humility is so vitally important. And once you get there, to that point of pure humility, then you will find peace within you and begin to really relax. Uh, like I said, my son was visiting me for uh, five days, and I enjoyed the visit, but when you have a class to teach and you have other obligations and you've got this to do and that to do, kind of sets up a little bit of anxiety, you might say, can I get them all done within the right amount of time? But with humility, you ask God for the help to get through, and it all goes very well without any problems. And I'm here today, you know. Um, so, I'm here today to really say how humility really can work. Yeah. Any questions? Yes, Dick? I'll have you. Begin to lament more and to weep. Would your laughter be turned into mourning? That would be a terrible one. Well, you really have trouble with being a good Christian if you're always crying and mourning and don't laugh. So, it's it's an exaggeration. Yes. No. 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 He's not meaning that in its face value. No. It's an exaggeration of saying, tame your appetite for all the things of the world. And tone it down to where it becomes part of Lord what is it you want of me today? And help me fulfill that and not go overboard. But your point is well taken. That's why I, I, am, I mentioned a little earlier that the wording is, you know, a little difficult to, to get around. And you have to be very careful when you read uh, James. And that's true with a lot of the Old Testament, uh, or a lot of the Bible in general. You've got to be careful of, of the wording. And that is why, uh, for those of you who are not aware, that is why we have what is called paraphrasing. Uh, there are a couple uh, so-called Bibles under the title of, uh, one is called The Way, and the other one is called Good News for Modern Men. Now, they're not wrong, but you have to understand those are not true Bibles. They are called paraphrases. And they were written, each of them were written by one individual person, not the same person, but uh, each was written by one person versus our authorized Bibles are written by a large group of people who all come together uh, to share what they have written to make sure that it is correct. The paraphrases the two that I mentioned, were written primarily for young people, you know, young teenagers, to get them started into understanding what the Bible is all about. And so they're written in everyday common language. 
uh, with our understanding today. But you've got to be very careful. They are not written really for any in-depth study of Scripture. So, they're good for young people, but for that purpose only. For adults um, and for devotional purposes or study purposes, no, I do not recommend them. Warning against presumption. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we shall go into such and such a town, spend a year there uh, doing business and make a profit. Hmm. You have no idea what your life will be like tomorrow. You are a puff of smoke that appears briefly and then disappears. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills it, we shall live to do this or that. Well, now you don't have to get into those kinds of words, but the idea, yes, the point is well taken here. If the Lord wills me to do this today or that today, uh, then that's fine. But now, well, let me give you another example. Uh, a week ago, or two weeks ago today, I picked up a friend from the hospital after uh, a procedure um, simply because her husband wasn't available, and I've been doing this off and on for uh, uh, several months. Uh, and that night she passed away. Apparently the medication that was given to her was more than uh, she could stand. Uh, the doctors told her in advance that what they were going to do to her was new and so forth and got her permission. She had to sign off on it. And they stayed with her while they were giving her this two or three hour infusion. Uh, just to see if there would be any reaction. And there was no reaction. In fact, when I picked her up to, to bring her home, she said she felt rather pretty good about it. And very pleased that it worked out well. Unfortunately, that night she passed away. Um, so you just never know. You never know. And especially as we get <clears throat> up to that more mature level, uh, you just never know. And you can't plan long distance or long time uh, strategies uh, without the idea that it's possible that they might not uh, take place. Okay. So instead, you should say, if the Lord wills it, we shall do that. You don't have to, you know, constantly verbalize that. But in the back of your mind, you've always got to keep that as well. And another thing. This is sort of off the record, or not part of the lesson, but... Uh, this friend of mine was a very 
uh, well-organized person. That is, in everything else except her own death. And there was no thought or plan uh, for anything relative to the death. And so the family asked me, because unfortunately I've been through it uh, several times recently, so I knew the ropes. But being well organized in everything else except your own personal, most personal affairs um, is kind of wrong at our, our age, you might say. Uh, so I recommend highly that if you haven't thought about uh, your own death and being prepared for it, not only in the practical things of where are you going to be buried, how are you going to be buried, uh, what kind of um, communications you want to make to various relatives and who they are, friends, relatives, neighbors, etc. All of those little things, it might sound rather picky, it might sound kind of morbid, but believe me, it helps the family out. It really does if, if you have all of those details worked out. Yeah. Okay. Let's go on to chapter 5. Chapter 5 to me is, is really, really important, particularly the very last part of it. Come now, you rich, weep and wail over your impending miseries. Your wealth has rotted away. Your clothes have become moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And that corrosion will be a testimony against you. It will devour your flesh like... Yeah, this is, again, is getting into those morbid words that uh, are sometimes harsh and they turn people off. But the whole idea, again is that riches, monetary riches, earthly riches, uh, are something that belongs to this world and not to the world of God. Uh, because when we leave this world, we leave all of those behind. And if that is the whole focus of our life, when we leave this world behind, what do we take with us? We've got nothing. But if we are someone who has lived in the presence of God, with God in our mind and our heart, and we are prepared for death, then we take a lot of the good things that we have accomplished with us. Because when we get to the pearly gates, God's not going to say, how much money did you make? Or what have you got in the bank down there? Uh, but what did you bring to me? What did you help? Or who did you help bring to me? And, you know, he's going to ask us about the good things of life. Or what he considers as the good things of life. It says, <clears throat> you have stored up treasures for the last days, but what good are they? Behold, the wages you withheld from workers has best who harvested your fields are crying aloud, etc. Yeah. Those things really don't apply to us 
directly, but if you think about similar types of actions, then you will be held accountable. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You too must be patient. Make your hearts firm because the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers, about one another. That may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing before the gates, those pearly gates. Somebody asked me the other day, why do you know that they're pearly? <laughs> so, well, in heaven, what other kind would there be? <laughs> take, <laughs> take as an example of hardship and patience, brothers, the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Indeed, we call blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of the perseverance of Job, and you have seen the, the purpose of the Lord, because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or with any other oath. Remember, swearing in the Bible is not using uh, bad language, all right, or foul language. It is taking an oath or making a promise that is not kept. That's what is we're talking about here. Above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth uh, or with any other oath. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. In other words, sincerity. And yeah, you may not incur condemnations. So all of this collectively is what we're talking about as a Catholic lifestyle. And you might say that humility is what governs all of this. Because with humility, we are then open to the good things that God wants us to observe and, and to uh, take into consideration and ignore uh, the riches of this world as a major thing. Now, riches in themselves are not wrong. It is the importance that you put into them and what you do with them. Now, this next section here is interesting because there's two points that are being made and these have become, and this is the source of two of our sacraments. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone in good spirits? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should summon the presbyters of the church. And they should pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed any sins, he will be forgiven. 
That is our sacrament of the anointing of the sick. We used to call it extremunction or the last rites. And in many cases, many ways, they still are, but not exclusively to people who are dying. But anyone who is in serious illness or about to have a serious operation of any kind can ask for the anointing of the sick. And it is the same or almost the same as the sacrament of confession or or penance which is a reconciliation as it should be called. And that is really the next section right here. And therefore, connect, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Not, it doesn't say a priest here in this case. If one another, or meaning anyone of a human nature and not just to God, that you may be healed. The fervent prayer of a righteous person, person is very powerful. Elijah was a human being like us, and yet he prayed earnestly that it might not rain uh, for three years and six months, and it did not rain upon the land. That was to show the Jewish people of that time period, and this is the 8th century B.C., uh, that he meant what he said and he had the power to say what he said and he showed it by causing a um, drought of three and a half years. And then when the people finally relented, he released that drought and he says, then he prayed again and the sky gave rain and the earth produced its fruit. And this was part to back up what he was saying to the people of uh, Judah at that particular time. My brothers, if anyone among you should pray, I'm sorry, Um, I'm thinking ahead of what I'm going to say. (laughs) If anyone among you should stray from the truth and someone bring him back, he should know that whoever brings back a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul uh, from death and will cover a multitude of sins. But how? That's prayer. Prayer is the most important part of a Catholic lifestyle. Without prayer, none of the things recommended in here can be fully accomplished to the way that God wants them. And so that is one of the things that I really want to get across is that prayer is so vitally important. And I don't mean the recitation of the Our Father and the Hail Mary over and over. Uh, Those prayers are wonderful and good. I have no problems with any of them. But that is not really what we're really talking about. Prayer is the one-on-one conversation with you and God. Now, what you might do is consider uh, there are so many examples 
you have uh, a very popular book that is out now called Jesus Calling. It's a daily devotional. You have the Word Among Us. You have a Magnificat. All of those are good. The Liturgy of the Hours. Uh, there's one called, uh, goes back to the 16th century. Uh, Thomas Akempis. Hmm? Uh, I'm sorry. Imitation of Christ. Yes. Uh, you know, that, that to me beats all of the more modern ones. Uh, the language is sometimes a little stiff, but nevertheless, uh, Thomas Akempis was way ahead of the people of today in doing a daily devotional. So you can use those as helpers to get you started or into the mood of praying. Any of them, they're all good. Uh, they all have their place and are appropriate. I'm reading one right now, uh, a daily, daily devotional written by uh, Pope Benedict XVI. And of course, I need a Philadelphia lawyer sitting next to me to understand some of the words that are being used, but Nevertheless, uh, it is beautifully written and very helpful. But then what you do is after you've read this for five minutes or so, then you take uh, what you gain from this reading and that begins a dialogue with God. So I recommend it highly. Ten or fifteen minutes each day. Now, you have to put aside your smartphones or your iPads or your computer or the television, uh, which might be difficult for some people, but it's well worth it. It's important. It's important, really, to really connect with a sense of church and in a Catholic lifestyle. Any questions? Okay. This generation has more time and to devote to prayer. But I think when I was younger, speaking to my father, um, I was as busy as any other young mother. Okay, so here they were doing that, here there, whatever. So I tried to make time as I traveled from one end of town to the other practical way to address prayer in my daily life. So when you're at a long stoplight, um, you could offer up that time either to say, you know, to say, okay, I'm not supposed to be on the road right now, am I not? You know, what else do you have in store for me today? So just to talk to God. That's uh, prayer. Common, yes, you know, that's okay. prayer. I mean, yes, it is. I mean, I'm just pointing Uh, Mother Teresa's uh, lifetime, she said that she 
did not know if she had any updates or not. And so um, I think that people in general need to read good works, but work toward that thing that they might want, but not necessarily have at that given time, because faith is a gift from the Holy Spirit. Not everybody receives that. So we need to work toward that end ourselves and then pray for those that don't have it, quote, quote, at all. Mm-hmm. Very so good. I don't know. Yeah. No, I think, I, I think you're right on. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Probably all of us should, you know, that we're not sure we're going to have faith. Because I think if you're to the point where you think, I'm going to do it, then you're probably really in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Amen. Yes, yes, you are. But you see, I think just the fact that you are thinking about your faith and are not sure whether you have all of it that you should have is leading you towards that end. You know, it gives you the uh, the urge, you might say, to pray for more faith. And that in itself is prayer. Just connecting your mind and your heart to God in wanting faith, in wanting to do his will, is prayer. And that is a great beginning. Uh, you're mentioning of praying at a stoplight, you know. Uh, I, I had the exact same experience. Um, a few times I got through on a green light so I didn't have to stop at all. And I'd say, thank you, Lord. And then after a while, every time I'd get through a green light, you know, I'd say, thank you, Lord. And then at one point in time, it was like the Lord saying to me, is that the only time you can say thank you? <laughs> you know? uh, and I thought, ooh, you know, I, I better look at other times too. You know? But uh, it, uh, it works. No, that's why I'm talking about prayer is not necessarily on your knees before the Blessed Sacrament or, you know, a crucifix in your house. It can be anywhere, anytime, any place. It's just the idea of connecting your mind and your heart to want that connection, to want to be with God, even if it's for a few moments. I realize having, you know, three children of my own, and my wife was very busy as well, so young people with young children young families, etc., yeah, they don't have a lot of long periods of time, but they have a lot of little periods of time. And it's the idea of those little periods of time connecting them with God. That is what he's asking for. sections of James got me thinking there was no sentence the apostles did get together every December and say well what are we going to preach next but yet James is like you say he's talking about 
two elements that became very, very uh, important in the Catholic life. Now, were the others doing the same thing? I don't recall anything Paul, but were the others saying things like this? Sure. That, that they congealed? Yes, by all Did means. They communicate with each other, maybe? Or? Yeah, because what James is saying, Christ had said in the Gospels. It may be a slightly different way, but nevertheless, James is not really saying anything new. He's just putting it into a more concise context. He's formalizing two principles of, the, of our faith. Yes. And uh, actions. Yes. You remember Christ, um, when he was faced with some lepers, and they wanted to be healed, and, you know, they asked him sincerely to be healed. And he sends them to the priest, or, uh, of, you know, that Jewish priest at that time. That's the whole idea that James is putting into a little bit more formal context that we understand today. But it's the same thing. So. Is it the only place in all the meetings where those thoughts of the fathers of the church have been brought together? Mostly out of the Gospels. Yes. The Gospels are the teachings of Christ. All of the all of the sacraments. You know, the marriage feast at Cana, which is in chapter two of the Gospel of John, that is a signal there that marriage is a sacrament because Christ was present at the time. Uh you know, and the church takes that a little bit further and formalizes it. But you have all of those kinds of things. Uh the uh Last Supper, which is depicted in all, uh, well, all three of the synoptic gospels, not in, in John, um, talks about uh, the consecration or the, that gives us the consecration uh, of the bread and the wine that we have today at Mass. So, yeah, all of those things uh, were talked about and discussed. Perhaps in slightly different ways, using different words, you might say, except for the consecration part. Uh, but that is what the uh, the councils were for, is to bring all of those together in some uniform way. Uh, the writings that went on throughout the first three ch- uh, centuries of this year were then finally brought together uh, by St. Jerome under the uh, teachings and the authority of Pope Damasus uh, in the 4th century. So you have uh, a lot of that spread among all of the apostles at that particular time. Yes, uh, June? Yes. And greet each other and do such and such. Yes. Were they then um, kind of making the the beginning of what a real church would be, where everybody would come together when they were able to? Is that what they would talk about in those little homes where they would pray together? Uh, not not so much at that time. Uh, 
they would talk about the stories within the Gospels. And, of course, the main story was the consecration of the bread and wine, which became the body and blood of Christ. So that's where they were talking about it? Yes. Okay. Yeah. And that is sort of a copy of how the synagogue system started for the Jewish people back in the 6th century. In Babylon, when they didn't have any temple anymore, uh, and so they started these little houses of study, and what they were studying was the book of Deuteronomy under the auspices of the prophet Ezekiel, and they would get together and study. And that's what a synagogue is, is a house of study and prayer. It is not a temple. There are no more Jewish temples. There was only the main temple in Jerusalem, which was destroyed in 77 AD. So, and that's the same format is used in the starting of the Catholic Church or the Christian churches um, in the first century in houses because there were no buildings and because of the persecutions between the Jews and the Christians and then later the Romans get in there that wasn't permitted and then of course the Romans continued persecutions up until the fourth century until the time of Constantine and the Edict of Milan. Between the first and the third, between the first and the fourth century. They would use those instead of homes because they were safer. Yeah. It was after the house uh, sort of died out because that wasn't safe for the people at that time period. So that's why the catacombs were developed not only as burial places, but also as places of worship. Yeah. In fact, they just discovered a new uh, catacomb in Rome just very recently, which was part of another one, but it had just been excavated and rediscovered and had some beautiful mosaics in it. Yeah. Yeah. Any other questions? All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Lord, help us to understand how we can become more Catholic. That is, opening our minds and our hearts to you more often for guidance and direction of exploring and explaining and developing and showing a Catholic lifestyle. Help us to truly understand what being Catholic means so that we can not only live it ourselves, but reflect it in the hopes that others might follow us. So we ask your blessing on our efforts, and we give you thanks and praise in all things. In Jesus' name.